Well, hey, good morning. My name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, welcome. We're really, really glad that you're here. We'd love to meet you after the service. You picked a great Sunday to come because we're starting a brand new series in the book of Revelation that I'm really fired up about. I hope you're excited about it as well. What a beautiful fall weekend we've had in Charlottesville, right? Anybody go to a pumpkin patch this weekend? Admit it, okay? Real pumpkin patch or a field that someone dumped pumpkins in from Whole Foods? Which one? Because you've been to both, you know what I'm talking about. We went to a real pumpkin patch on Friday and I realized, oh, this is what an actual pumpkin patch looks like, okay? It like, was not what I was used to. Anyway, we're glad you're here. Hey, if you weren't with us last week, big announcement uh, last week, we'll refresh it here. Starting Sunday, January 21st, this is exciting, get ready to clap. We're launching a 4.30 p.m. worship service. Yay! Let's go, right? Oh man, it's very, very exciting. You guys are very kind. The 9.15 was not kind. They were like, I, I received that from you, you know? Like, Thanks a lot, guys. Have a second cup of coffee. Anyway, why are we doing that? Well, let me remind you briefly. Um, We're doing it because it will help us reach more people, okay? It will create more space for all the people that you are inviting that God is bringing to our church, seats to sit in, spots to park in, uh, space for kids to be discipled, so it'll create more space. Second, it'll help us reach different kinds of people, okay? There's just some groups of people that probably aren't gonna come to a Sunday morning worship service. Maybe uh, you are a healthcare worker and you have a really dynamic work schedule. Like, there's, okay, I'm not gonna tell you her name. She's awesome. She's a member of our church. I absolutely love her to death. She was knocked out asleep in the third row in the 915 service, like dead asleep, like leaning on uh, someone's shoulder. And I literally, in my head, wasn't even mad. I was like, she probably worked all night. And I saw her afterwards. She was like, I'm so sorry. I was asleep. I worked all night. And I was like, we're launching a service for you, okay? Um, So that's you. You know, it'll be great for you. And then there's just people and families who, let's be honest, this was my family growing up. You just have a hard time getting it going on Sunday morning, right? You're like, ah, it was late last night. I want to sleep in. This will be great for you. So help us reach different kinds of people. Um, I'm excited because it's going to deepen our discipleship as a church because it's going create opportunities for you to step up to serve and to lead in new ways. And so I'm confident that some of you are going to step up to serve and to lead in brand new ways uh, to help us launch this. And man, I'm excited about what that'll mean for your character and for uh, your relationship to Christ. Fourthly, it'll expand our future sending capacity, right? So we're a going church. We care about missionaries and church planting and reaching new pockets and new cities and new places. You can only be a going church if you're a growing church. They kind of have to go together because if you send them all away, then you got nothing left, right? And so we're excited about the church planters and the missionaries and the church planning teams, they're going to be raised up as we launch this third or this, uh, this third service, okay? Uh, but really the big reason, the big theological reason that we're doing it is because Jesus loves to reach people. He loves it. He, he disrupted his life to reach us, and now as his disciples, we want to disrupt our lives to reach others, okay? And I told you last week that it's going to take a whole church effort to launch this service. It's going to take every single one of us kind of doing our part. And so what I want to do this morning then at the end of the service is show you using this card how you can opt in and you can say, hey, I want to do my part to make this thing happen. And I was reading the book of Nehemiah this week, and it just felt really, really relevant, so I'll, I'll share it with you. Nehemiah tells the story of how God's people returned to Jerusalem, they rebuilt the walls, and they reestablished pure worship, and it only took them 52 days. It only took them, how about a construction project that only takes 52 days? That's a miracle, right? Um, Only took 52 days. Why did they get so much done in so little time? Because everybody did their part. Everybody did their part. Nehemiah chapter three is very boring if you don't understand what's going on. It's just like one long list of names and places. It's like this family built this section of the wall and that family built that section of the wall and these politicians built this section and these, uh, these, these goldsmiths built that section and these servants built that. It just goes on for three chapters. Like what is the point of this? Here's the point guys. Nobody did everything, but everybody did something. And as a result, the mission of God went forward. That's what, that's what Nehemiah three is about. You see, launching this service is our wall, if you will. Right, Launching this service is, is, is a major way that our church is going to move forward by faith and see the mission of God go forward through us. And if we're gonna launch this service, it's gonna be because you and I each take ownership for our section of the wall. 
Okay, my section of the wall is preaching three times every Sunday. Pray for me. That feels like a big section of the wall, okay? <laughs> I don't know what your section of the wall is. It, it might be, man, coming in the morning and then coming back at night to serve and center kids so that we can offer a kid's ministry. It might be jumping off the sidelines to serve for the very first time. I don't know what your section is. I do know that you have a section of the wall. And here's what I don't want for you. I don't want you to end up as the one group in Nehemiah 3 who didn't serve. There was one group of people in Nehemiah 3 that said, we're unwilling to serve. Let me read it to you, Nehemiah 3, 5. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Wow. This group of people went down in biblical history as the one group who wasn't willing to serve to rebuild the wall. You don't wanna be that group. You know what you, know what you want? You wanna help us launch this service. You wanna see somebody get baptized and you wanna be like, I help make that happen. That's what you want. Because I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, what was this group of nobles doing when everybody else was celebrating that the wall was rebuilt? They were probably regretting. While everyone else was rejoicing, they were regretting because they wouldn't stoop to serve the Lord. I don't want that for you. I want you to take ownership for your section of the wall. I don't know what section it is, but I know God has one for you. We wanna help you do that. And so at the end of the service, we're gonna walk through this commitment card about all the different ways that you can take ownership for a section of your wall. Okay, that's our heart. We, wanna, we don't want anybody to do everything, but we want everybody to do something so that the mission of God can move forward. So we're just gonna pray. I'm gonna ask God to bless us in this endeavor because it's a heavy lift. And then we're gonna jump into Revelation, okay? Pray with me. Oh, Lord God, thank you that you disrupted your life uh, to pursue us and to save us. And we have the opportunity to do that for others. So Lord, would you bless us? Would you uh, be kind to us? Would you bless the work of our hands as we launch this third service? And would you help every one of us to discern clearly what you are calling us to do, what section you're giving us to build and give us the strength to do it. Amen, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can meet me in Revelation chapter one, verse one. You picked a great Sunday to come because we're starting a brand new series so we'll all be new together. We're gonna spend the next eight weeks studying seven churches that Jesus addresses in Revelation chapters one through three. So I'm sorry, we're not gonna get into who is the dragon and the beast and all that stuff. I'm not smart enough yet, okay? Stay for 15 years and I might preach it when I'm 50, all right? But not yet, okay? I already had people ask me about that. Anyway, we're not gonna have a giant chart up here, sorry. Um, but Revelation one through three is extraordinarily relevant for our our church today. And let me explain to you why. All the churches in Revelation were churches under pressure. They're under pressure. They're under pressure to conform their beliefs and their behaviors to the culture of the Roman Empire. And they had one of two options. They could stand out and be persecuted, or they could compromise and be comfortable. Those are the two options. Revelation was written to encourage those who were standing up for truth and being persecuted, and to correct those who were compromising in order to be comfortable. And this book is relevant for all of us because here's what, here's what you know, here's what I know, that if you were a follower of Jesus, you are always under pressure to conform to our cultural moment. You are, you feel this. You feel it at work. You feel it in your grad program. You feel it in the hospital that, where you work. You feel it in your extended family. You are always under pressure. Your kids feel it. Your kids feel it at school. Your kids feel it online. You are always under pressure to water down biblical truth and to conform what Jesus said to be more palatable in our cultural moment. It was true then. It's true today. It has always been true of followers of Jesus Christ. So here's the question. Where do you get the strength to bear up under all that? Where do you get the strength to bear up under the pressure to conform that you feel every single day? Well, here's where you get it. You get it from correcting your lopsided view of Jesus. I think most of us have a lopsided view of Jesus. What do I mean? I think we have a view of Jesus that is overly focused on his humiliation and not focused enough on his exaltation. You see, theologians talk about the two stages of Christ, his humiliation and his exaltation. His humiliation includes what? Well, it includes his incarnation. It includes his suffering. It includes his death. It includes his burial. 
but that's only half of who Christ is. Then you have his exaltation, that's his resurrection, that's his ascension, that's the fact that he's seated at the right hand of glory and one time, one day he's going to return in authority and in power. Guys, here's the problem, we overly focus on Jesus's humiliation, we don't focus enough on his exaltation. If I asked you or if I asked the average person out on the street, hey, describe Jesus for me, you know what they would say? They'd be like, he's like a six foot two European guy with a lamb on his shoulder and he's teaching a child. Like he was not a six foot two European guy, okay? And I don't know if he ever carried a lamb. He did teach children. But like we have this vision of Jesus that comes almost exclusively from the gospels. We need to marry that with a vision of Jesus that comes from Revelation. Because here's the truth. The gospels are Jesus in his humiliation. Revelation is Jesus in his exaltation. The gospels are how Jesus was. Friends, Revelation is how Jesus is right now. Jesus isn't humble anymore. Jesus isn't suffering anymore. Jesus is exalted, powerful, reigning, returning right now. And if you're going to bear up under the pressure of this world, if you're gonna bear up under the suffering and the tribulation and the hardship, you need to know that your king wins and then he's coming back. And that's what Revelation is going to do. It's going to paint a picture for us of who Jesus actually is. It's going to round out our vision of Jesus. So yes, it is Jesus in his humiliation and Jesus in his exaltation. He is both the lamb of God who is slain and he's the king of all kings who is returning. And we need both of them if we're going to stand up under the pressure that we all face. So we're gonna walk through this text and I'm just gonna describe Jesus a bunch. That's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna go title, 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 description, character. And then at the end, I'm just gonna ask how, we should, how should we respond to this? Okay, very simple outline today. Describe Jesus and then what should we do? That's what we're gonna do. All right, look at verse one. The revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the main character of this book. He's the main character of the Bible. He's the hero of the Christian faith, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in them for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. All right, verses one through four are a prologue of the entire book of Revelation. And it tells us three things about this book. What is this book? Number one, this book is a revelation. You see that word in the very first verse? It is a revelation. Hey, did you know this? People make up religions all the time. Did you know that? I was in an Uber a couple months ago and this guy was telling me about his homemade religion and it was the strangest thing I have ever heard, but he was convinced. And I was just like, all right, man. I literally was like, I think you're wrong, man, but whatever, you know, like, I, it was, he just made up religion. I mean, people make up religions all the time. But the biblical claim, the biblical claim is that Christianity was not made up by man, it was revealed by God. That it's not just, you know, some sort of interesting religious ideas that John and Peter and James had and decided to write a book, but no, it is divine truth revealed by God and given to man. You see, Christianity is what's called a revelatory faith, that God has forfeited his divine privacy so that we might know who he is, his character, and we might know what he wants, his will. And revelation always brings two things. It always brings opportunity and accountability. Opportunity, you can know God. You can have a relationship with your maker. You don't just have to have human speculation, you can have divine revelation. Hallelujah, I can be saved and redeemed and brought into the family of God and have purpose and be filled with the spirit. Opportunity, also accountability. What do you do with the revelation of God? Do you treat it as what it is? Do you, do you stand under the word of God? Do you stand to the side of the word of God? Do you put it on the ground and stand on top of the word of God? Opportunity and accountability, it's both. And the book of Revelation is gonna give us both. It's gonna come and it's gonna say, hey, here's some incredible truths to build your life upon, but it also is gonna hold us accountable. He says in verse three, blessed is the one who what? Who hears and does these things. It's not an unconditional blessing. Blessed is the one who hears and does these things. So the book is a revelation. Number two, the book is prophetic. You see that? It's prophecy in verse three. It's prophetic. What does that mean? Well, prophecy is less about predicting the future and it's more about helping the people of God apply God's word in the present. 
So in the Old Testament, the prophets didn't do a lot of predicting the future. They did a little bit of it. They did a lot of, here's the truth of God's word. You need to live according to it. That's what they did. So here's what God wants to do in your life through this series. He wants to give you a word. You know what that means? It's when God takes the truth of his scripture and he applies it to your life, boom, right now. He, he might wanna give you a word of encouragement. He might wanna be like, I see you, I love you, keep going. He might wanna give you a word of hope. Hey, I know your marriage is on the rocks and it seems like, it seems like nothing's ever gonna change. Through the power of my Holy Spirit, it can change. You can have a new marriage with the same person. He might wanna give you a word of correction. Hey, there's this area of your life that you don't have submitted to me. Your finances aren't submitted to me. Your sexuality isn't submitted to me, but I'm the resurrected and reigning king and I'm either Lord of all or I'm not Lord of at all. So let's deal with this, right? Revelation wants to give, wants to give us a word. Finally, Revelation is a letter. Do you see that down there in verse four? It says that it was written by John to a group of churches in Asia. So, so what does this all mean? Well, it was written by the apostle John. So John was one of Jesus' three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. He wrote the gospel of John, first, second, and third John, and then Revelation. At this point, he's an old man, probably in his mid-80s, and he's probably the last living apostle, and he's been exiled to the prison island of Patmos. Patmos was a prison colony that Rome established about 40 miles off the coast of Ephesus, and he got sent there because he refused to be quiet about the gospel. He refused to conform, and so eventually Rome put him in prison. And he's writing to a group of seven churches that were located, this is very interesting, along a Roman postal route. Isn't that fascinating? It was a postal route that ran through Asia Minor, which is kind of modern day Turkey. And Jesus addresses these churches in the order of the postal route. So it's like Ephesus and then boom, 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 boom. So, so it goes all wrong. So this is, this is a letter. So Revelation was written to historical churches in, in real time and place that were dealing with real pressures. And so, man, Jesus is going to address all kinds of different things that you're gonna say, hey, you know what? I feel that too. That, that seems very relevant to me today. It was written to those churches then, but it also is relevant to us today because those were not only historical churches, they're also symbolic of the church throughout history, okay? All right, here's verse four. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who, uh, who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who were before his throne. So John starts off by saying, grace to you and peace. What is that? Those are words of comfort. Those are words of encouragement. And then he says, these words of comfort and encouragement are anchored in the character of your God. He starts by referring to he who is and who was and who is to come. That's a reference to God the Father, the eternal God. Now, why is it comforting that your God is the eternal God? Because it means that your God will never fade away, that your God will never crumble. You know what's going to happen to the empire that we live in? It's going to crumble. Do what happened to Rome? Rome crumbled. It's a fascinating story. There was a group of Christians meeting as an underground church below the Roman Senate building in the first century. And above them in this beautiful building made out of marble were the most powerful men in the world. And they would get together and they would declare the glory of eternal Rome. And then there's this little group of misfits who were meeting in the catacombs underneath the Senate building for fear of persecution. And they're declaring the glory of the eternal God. Guess which one is still around? The church of Jesus Christ. Rome has come and Rome has gone and the church of Jesus Christ endures because he is the eternal God. I know that sometimes it feels like the powers that oppose you, whether it's people or institutions or cultural ideas have always been and they'll always be and they're never going away. They are, they are. They're like grass, they're gonna wither and fade, but the word of God will endure forever. It has for 2000 years, it, ha it will for 2000 more or until Jesus returns, okay? Grace and peace to you from God, the eternal one. He goes on, he says, grace and peace to you from the seven spirits who are before the throne. What is that about? 
Seven spirits, oh, there's one spirit, what are we doing? Well, let me help you out. Uh, in Revelation, the number seven is symbolic, okay? It's kind of crazy later on, okay? It's, it's symbolic, it represents fullness, it represents wholeness, it represents, ho- represents holiness, which is why most scholars agree that John is making a reference to the Holy Spirit. He's saying, hey, grace to you and peace from the Holy Spirit who's perfect, who's whole, who is everywhere. That's what seven means. So why would that, why would that comfort you? Why, why would that comfort them? Why should that comfort you? Well, because have you ever felt alone when you suffer? Have you ever felt like really isolated when you're not invited to that one thing that all, all your classmates are going to? And you're, you're not invited because they know that you're one of those Christians. Like, have you ever, have you ever felt isolated for what you believe? Like, like man, you're, you're no longer in that, in that mom's group chat because, you know, they know that what, you know, like if you've ever felt isolated, if you've ever felt by yourself, if you've ever felt, man, uh, you know, lonely when you suffer, man, this is comfort to you. The spirit is always with you. God is always present with his people through the spirit. No matter what you go through, no matter how hard it is, no matter where you are, the Lord God is with you. Grace to you and peace from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Now in verse five, John gets into his introduction of Jesus Christ and he spends a lot of time on Jesus Christ, much more than even on the father or the spirit. Why? Well, partially because Jesus Christ is the hero of the book of Revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus and it's a revelation from Jesus and it's a revelation about Jesus. And just so you know, friends, to be a Christian does not simply mean that you believe in God. It doesn't even mean that you believe in God and you know that you need to be forgiven. Christians are those who have personally repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. Not just someone who genuinely believes that God exists or that there is right and wrong, but someone who says, no, I need a savior and I have repented and I've entrusted myself to the lordship and the sovereignty and the direction and the love of Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ that John is about to introduce us to. Grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, that means look, that means see, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. In this introduction, John teaches us five truths about Jesus. These are truths about Jesus that if you believe them, if you work them into your heart, man, they'll put wind in your sail and they'll put steel in your spines. All right, here is number one. He is the faithful witness. What does that mean? Well, what, what do you do when you get on a witness stand? You're supposed to get up and tell the truth. Here's what John is saying. Jesus always told the truth, even when it makes you mad. You know what I love about Jesus? You know what you should love about Jesus? His integrity. You know what we hate about politicians? You're like, you got a list? You know what we hate about politicians? They say one thing to one group and they say another thing to another group. Doesn't that drive you crazy? It's like with one group, they're like, oh, I'll do this. And then with another group, they're like, oh, I'll do that. And you're like, you have no integrity. You're just trying to win votes. Jesus had perfect integrity. Do you know what he said to the rich people? Same thing he said to the poor people. Do you know what he said to the powerful people? Same thing he said to the weak people. Jesus is the faithful witness. You can trust his word. Why does that matter? Because we often doubt his word. When Jesus says, hey, I shed my blood so that you can be forgiven of your sins, we often think, I don't know about my sins. When Jesus says, God the Father wants to have a relationship with you through my work, we often think, ooh, not with my history. Or on the flip side, when Jesus, says, says, I, when Jesus Christ says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, we go, well, that seems a little outdated. Right, he is the faithful witness. His words are true. That is the claim of the scriptures, that every single word that Jesus has ever said is true. You can take it to the bank and you can build your life upon it. Next, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he was the first person to die, but it means that he was the first person to die, to rise again, to never die again. You see, friends, Christianity is built on the historical claim that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and was resurrected. 
This is really important to understand, guys. If you, don't, if you don't take anything else away from this, understand what I'm about to say. And if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, please understand this. The early Christians did not go around preaching what they believed. They went around preaching what they heard and saw and touched. Those are very different things. Buddhists go around preaching what they believe. Muslims go around preaching what they believe. Mormons going around preaching what they believe. The early disciples did not refer to themselves as gurus or prophets or insightful teachers. They said, we're witnesses. We, it's not like Peter woke up and he's like, I know what I'll do with my life. I'll ruin everything. I'll give up my job. I'll have my family put to death because I'm gonna come up with this crazy new religion. You wouldn't do that and neither would Peter. The only reason that his life was radically transformed is because he experienced the resurrected Jesus. And he was like, all right, well, he's God. So I got like, I gotta tell people about it. He's the firstborn from the dead. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that if you repent and trust in him, then you will one day experience a resurrection like his. And friends, that's really good news. Because here's what you know, here's what I know. Death is coming for all of us. This is, I, I hate to say this, but this is true. You will bury the people you care the most about. Like you, might have just, you might have just done that. You're, like you're, gonna, you're gonna bury your parents. If you're married, one, one spouse is gonna bury the other and then the other is gonna be a widow. God forbid, you might have to bury your kids. Live long enough, love enough people, you're gonna suffer and you're gonna grieve and death is going to come into your life and there's not gonna be anything that you can do about it. And friends, I've done some funerals. In that moment, you need something so much better than wishful thinking and religious sentiment. You need hope of resurrection. You need a faith that is built on content. You need a faith that has substance. You, have a, you need a faith that has a foundation in a historical objective event. Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, who conquered death and offers eternal life to all who repent and trust in him. After the 915 service, I was talking to one of, her one of our members whose mother just died. This week, she went to her funeral. And through tears, she told me as we prayed together, she said, it's been very, very difficult. She said, but knowing that my mother was a believer and that she has gone into eternal life has been such a comfort to me. Jesus Christ is the firstborn for the dead. And that means that if you are one of his followers, if your loved ones follow him, then you will still have to go through the veil of tears that we call this life. But one day, one day, we will be welcomed into eternal life. He is the firstborn from the dead. Next, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is actually the person in charge. It means that all the little kings and their little kingdoms in our world are gonna have to give an account to him. Whether that's a political leader or business executive or I don't know, some professor or family member that is making your life hard. That one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to call to account all those who have opposed him. Um, if you've ever felt like the world is out of control and that everything is going to hell in a handbasket, it's good to meditate on this truth. Because like, like life can feel chaotic and the world can feel chaotic and things are changing so quickly and it, can, and it can feel really dark and hopeless. And then you have to remember, Jesus is currently actively on his throne. It's not that he'll be on his throne in the future, it's that he's on his throne right now and he's working all things towards his purposes and his end because he is the king of the earth. Next, and this is so powerful, we're told that Jesus loves us and has freed us. I don't know who this is for. This is for somebody in here. Loves is in the present tense. Do you understand that? So I talk to so many people. Um, I have uh, godly people that I love who feel this way. And they're like, I know Jesus died for me in the past. I know he loved me. That's why I went to the cross. And I know he's gonna love me in the future when like I'm free from sin and I'm not struggling anymore. But I just have a hard time that he loves me right now. Can I encourage you? Jesus loves the broken, struggling, sinful, compromising version of you. 
He doesn't just love the future version of you that gets your act together. He doesn't love the future version of you that's like way better, way better at work and way more pure, man, way more devoted and a much better parent. He loves present you. And do you know why he loves present you? Because his love for you is not based on your performance. Do you understand that? You could have an awesome day. You could have a horrible day. Your day could be like a cathedral. Your day could be like a dumpster fire. It just doesn't matter. It like just, Jesus is like, look guys, I don't know how many times I can say this. My love for you is not based on your behavior. If it was, I wouldn't love you, but it's not. And so I do. So just, I don't know who that's for. Whoever it's for, receive it. Jesus loves you right now. He doesn't love a future version of you. He loves the present version of you. Because he loves you, he's freed you. You see that? How did he free you? He freed you by his blood. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus shed his blood, he shed his blood as an atonement for our sins, which means he cleansed us of the penalty of sin. Okay, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for my sins and for the sins of all who would repent and trust in Christ. So we've been freed from the penalty of sin. And one day, because of the blood of Jesus, we'll be freed from the presence of sin. So when you have trusted in Christ, you've been cleansed, you receive the gift of eternal life, so one day you'll die, you'll go to be with the Lord in paradise, there'll be no more sin. You'll be free from the presence of sin, okay? That's good news. But in the meantime, do you know what Jesus is doing? He's freeing us from the power of sin. He broke the power of sin in your life when you became a Christian, but now we kind of have to work that out progressively. And you say, I, I'm, not, I'm not enslaved to sin, Josh. He's like, well, what about all those things you keep trying to not do, but you keep doing? What about like that anger you keep expressing towards your kids? What about that greed in your life that keeps you from being generous? What about that guy that you keep texting back when you say, I'm not gonna text him back? What about that new relationship with food you keep saying you're gonna have, but you don't have? What about all those changes you're gonna make? What about how you're, this is gonna be the year you stop drinking so much. What is that? That's bondage. That's bondage. And what Jesus came to do is he came to break bondage in our lives. He says, look, I've defeated Satan, sin, and death, and I want you to walk in the freedom of the sons of God. I don't want you to walk in bondage that I have freed you from. Jesus loves present you, and because he loves you, he not only wants to save you by his grace, but he wants to transform you by your grace that you would walk in greater degrees of freedom. Finally, Jesus is returning. See what John says? He's coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who have pierced him. And the tribes of the earth, that is those who have not bent the knee and worship Jesus as Lord and Savior will wail at his coming. Why is that important? Well, think about it. If you're this marginalized church in the first century who's under pressure from the Roman empire, aren't you glad that your king is coming back? Aren't you glad that one day you will be vindicated and one day you'll be welcomed into his glory? Answer is yes. If you are going to stand strong in this world, you're gonna face tribulation. Things aren't always gonna go well for you. You're gonna suffer. And when that happens, you've gotta know that it's worth it because your king is coming back. Guys, to be really honest with you, if Jesus isn't coming back, none of us should be here, right? It's like, you can find a much better TED Talk online, right? You can find better music. Our band's pretty good, but you can find better music and you can probably make friends somewhere else, I hope, right? Like, I don't know. But if Jesus isn't coming back, this is a whole, this total waste of time. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection never really happened, if Jesus isn't coming back, then just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So like either do that or live like Jesus is returning. Um, <laughs> if I knew Frederick Nietzsche, this would be the first time I've quoted Nietzsche in a sermon. Nietzsche, Nietzsche hated this. Nietzsche said, stop being inconsistent. He was an atheist, but he said, look, Christians live like Jesus is coming back or deny that he's coming back and live like he's not. And then he would look at atheists and he would say, stop borrowing values from the Bible. He'd be like, if you don't think he's coming back, then don't live like he's coming back. I love Nietzsche. He's just very honest. I love Nietzsche. He was kind of a crazy guy. But like, he was just a crazy guy. And he was just like, be consistent. So I would say to you, like, be consistent. If you don't believe Jesus is coming back, then live that way. 
But also know that like, you have no hope. I mean, not to be a jerk, but like, right? I mean, <laughs> really having a great time here today. Um, but if you do believe Jesus is coming back, live like it. Let it infuse every moment of your day with eternal significance. Because if Jesus is coming back, you've never just parented. You've never just been a student. You've never just served. You've never just given. You've never just forgiven. You know what all that is? That's worship. That's worship and faithfulness of your king. So I would say live every moment of your day with this idea. If Jesus returns today, I would be excited. Like if Jesus returns right now, wouldn't we all be so pumped because we're in church? Wouldn't that be great? But like, this is kind of a good self-evaluation tool. If there's any moment of your day or any part of your life that you're like, oh, I hope Jesus doesn't return during this. <laughs> yellow flag, right? It's like, <laughs> all right, we should kind of think about this. All right, uh, Jesus is returning. Um, and just notice, I gotta point this out. Just notice that it will be a joyful day when Jesus returns for his people. It'll be a very grievous day for those who have rejected him. So I would say to you, if you're here and, you're, and you've never re repented and believed in Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you to, because on that day, it'll be too late. But Jesus would rather, and I would rather you receive him with worship than with wailing. The day, that's why the scriptures say today is the day of salvation because you're hearing the good news of the gospel. You have an opportunity to respond. Okay, in verse nine through 11, John tells us the occasion for writing this letter, kind of what started this thing. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Um, okay, so, so John says he was on Patmos on the Lord's day. Now, Lord's day is a reference to Sunday. So Jews uh, had their Sabbath, their day of worship on Saturday, but Christians in the early church moved it to Sunday because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So when John says, I was, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, the Lord's day means Sunday, this day, okay? Uh, and when John says he was in the spirit, that means he was in a particular posture of worship. It means he was diligently seeking the Lord's face and he was asking for the Lord to speak to him. And as he's in, in uh, the spirit on the Lord's day, probably with other believers, if there are other believers on the island of Patmos, he hears this loud voice and he turns around and Jesus gives him a word. And this word encourages John, it strengthens John, and it also encourages other people through John. I think all of you want that. I want that. Like, I want Jesus to encourage me. I want Jesus to, to give me a word. I want Jesus to, man, support me and strengthen me and build me up. Well, what was John doing when he received that word? He's basically in church on Patmos. That's what he was doing. It was Sunday. He was seeking the Lord with other believers that were there. So I would suggest to you that if you would like to receive a word from God, make it your practice to gather with the people of God, right? That's when John was encouraged by Jesus. And I believe that that's when you're gonna be encouraged as well. So John heard a voice saying, hey, write down this vision that you have and send it to the churches. And this is the vision that begins of Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. That phrase, one like a son of man, was Jesus's favorite title for himself in the gospels. It's the one he most often used. And it's a reference to Daniel chapter seven. Daniel chapter seven describes a divine figure who comes with utter authority and power. And Jesus said, that's me. So John turns around and he sees Jesus, one like a son of man, and he is in the midst of the lampstands. And verse 20 tells us that these lampstands represent the seven churches that John is going to write to. So here's what I want you to see. Jesus is in the midst of his churches. He's not an absentee landlord. He's not some sort of clockmaker who set the world up and then stepped away. He's not divorced and distinct from your life and from your joys and from your sorrows, but he's in the midst of it. He's in the midst of his churches. And I love that it doesn't just say he's in the midst of his church generally, 
but he's in the midst of his churches in particular. You know what that means? It means that Jesus is in the midst of our church. He's in our church. He knows what's going well in this church. He knows where we're pure. He knows where we're impure. He knows where we're strong. He knows where we're weak. He knows the people that need to be encouraged and built up. He knows the people that need to be corrected and reformed. Jesus is not just in the midst of the church generally, he's in the midst of our church in particular. One of the reasons, guys, that I wanna have my life and my family intertwined with the church is because that's where Jesus is. So if you want your life and if you want your family to experience the presence of Jesus, your best bet is to intertwine your life and your family with one of Jesus's churches because that's where he is. He's in the midst of his churches. Now, I know that some of you have experienced a lot of hurt in churches. And I know there are churches out there that are not faithful witnesses or reflections of who Jesus is and what he stands for, but that doesn't change the fact that Jesus loves his church and Jesus is in the midst of his church. He's still the shepherd of the flock, the head of the body, the vine of the branches, the foundation of the temple and the husband to the bride, right? So if you want Jesus's presence in your life and in your family, then intertwine your life and your family with Jesus's church because that's where he is. John says, I saw one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The long robe and golden sash are images of the priesthood in the Old Testament. That's what the priests wore. So here's what John is saying. Jesus Christ is your great high priest. He's your great high priest. We often don't believe this. You're like, yeah, I do, Josh, what do you mean? No, you don't, let me explain. Um, I don't either. Have you ever really messed up? Like you did something that you're, you're really ashamed of and you're like, I just don't feel like I can, I just don't feel like I can engage with God right now. Like, I don't feel like I can go to church tomorrow. Like, I just need like a couple of days to like repent of this and like really feel bad about it. And I need to, I need to really feel this. And then I'll, you ever felt like that? I have. That's because we don't understand what a priest is. Guys, the priests weren't given in the Old Testament for the strength of the people. The priests were given for the weakness of the people. The priests were given because the people were a mess. And what the priests did was the priests mediated because, between the weakness of the people and the holiness of God. And they said, I will be your mediator and I will offer sacrifices on your behalf and I will mediate and pray for you and intercede to the Father because of your weakness. You can't go up there, but I can mediate between you. That's Jesus Christ in your life. So when you sin, it's the perfect time to go to Jesus Christ because that's what he does. He's a great high priest. And Hebrews tells us that he's a great high priest who sympathizes with us because he was tempted in every way like we have been tempted yet without sin. So, so when you mess up again, and you give into that temptation, do you know what Jesus thinks? He thinks, I remember how hard that was. Right, he's sympathetic, he's a great high priest. So you don't have to wait to clean up your life, you can come to him right now. And hallelujah that we have a great high priest who welcomes us and is sympathetic to our weaknesses. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Can I get an amen from the seasoned saints? Anybody out there? All right, we have none. They're like, you know, everybody here is 32 years old. Uh, we got some salt and pepper around probably. All right, what, is, what does this mean? Well, uh, in the first century, uh, white hair was a sign of great wisdom that you acquired over many years. And so here's what John is saying. Here's what this image is saying, is that Jesus possesses perfect divine wisdom. And first, first Corinthians one says, Jesus is the wisdom of God. And you're like, all right, great. Well, why does that matter? Here's what that means. It means the words of Jesus are not random. They aren't naive, they aren't outdated, they aren't culturally conditioned, and they're not one of many perspectives. They are pillars of divine truth. Here's what this means. You don't have to live your life according to Jesus's words, but if you don't, you will destroy yourself. Have you ever noticed somebody that isn't a Christian, but for whatever reason, orders their life according to the truths of the scripture and it still goes better for them? Have you ever noticed that? 
You're like, this doesn't make you a Christian, but you're just living according to the wisdom of God's word and you're, and you're benefiting as a result. Look, if you want your family, if you want your finances, if you want your career, if you want your relationships, if you want your sexuality to be blessed, order it according to the design of God's word because everything that Jesus has said is perfect in wisdom. He's not naive, he's not outdated. It's not like he would show up today and be like, oh, I have a lot to, I have a lot to consider. No, it's like his words are revelation of divine truth and when we order our lives according to it, it's like we build our house upon the rock and when the storms come and the wind blows and the waves beat on that house, that house doesn't fall. I don't want your house to fall. Jesus doesn't want your house to fall, so build your life on the rock of his word. Next, his flames, or his eyes were like a flame of fire. This is, have you ever seen a picture of somebody trying to draw Jesus from this chapter and it's really creepy, you know what I'm talking about? And there's like fire eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and you're like, I'm not sure what's going on. Uh, you're not supposed to do that. The reason John uses the word like 56 times in Revelation, he's saying this isn't, these are symbols that describe Jesus' character. They're not like an exact description of, you know, his eyes aren't actually on fire. But anyway, um, what, what does that fire mean? Well, it's not a consuming fire, it's an illuminating fire. You see, this is speaking to Jesus' omniscience, that he sees all things. And that's, again, that's both comforting and challenging. Why is it comforting? Because it means that he sees you in your loneliness. He sees you in your longing. He sees you in your singleness. He knows that um, you and your spouse have been longing for children for years, and it's been very, very difficult. And you've gone through miscarriages, and you've gone through suffering. He sees you. He sees your eating disorder. He knows you're trying to work on it, and you just don't feel, you just, he sees your mental health challenges. He sees just how broken your family is and you're just like, I don't even know if there's any hope and I'm so discouraged by this. He sees you. Like God saw Hagar in the wilderness and Jesus sees his people today. It's comforting. It's also kind of challenging because not only does Jesus see you, he also sees through you, right? He sees through my rationalizations. He sees through my excuses. He sees through my lies, right? I, I mean, I can lie to other people. I can even lie to myself. I can't lie to the Lord Jesus. Um, there, there are some of us here this morning who think there's an area of our life that no one knows about. And that's a, that's a false conclusion. Jesus knows about it. And so if there's some area of your life that's dark and that's sinful and that you're, you don't want anybody to know about, just know Jesus knows. And he would rather you bring it to him as the great high priest than have it revealed in judgment. He's like, I already know about it. I've shed my blood to cleanse you of it. Why not bring it into the light? Why not bring your alcoholism into the light? Why not bring your cutting into the light? Why not bring your same-sex attraction into the light? Why not bring that to me so that I can cleanse you, forgive you, and help you with my body to grow? He sees us in our suffering, but he also sees everything that's going on in our lives. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. All of these images are clustered together and they're all pointing to the authority of Jesus Christ. His bronze feet are heavy and strong and they crush everything in his path. This is contrasted with the empires of the world that are described in the Bible as having clay feet, clay feet that fail and falter and don't endure. His voice is like the roar of many waters. Have you ever been to the bottom of Niagara Falls or like a big waterfall? I mean, it is deafening. It is deafening. Roaring water is one of the most powerful forces on our planet. I mean, it can destroy whole towns in hours. It, it carved the Grand Canyon. Man, that's what Jesus's word is like. It is, it is powerful. It changes entire landscapes. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Those are the churches. What's this saying? It's saying he's not only in the midst of this church, he upholds his church. Praise God for that. This church is not upheld by me. It's not upheld by our elder team. It's not upheld by our members. It's not upheld by you or your giving or your serving. It's upheld by Jesus Christ. Very grateful for that. 
And that's why the church has endured for 2,000 years and it's why the church will endure until Jesus returns because Jesus is holding those stars in his hand. He is upholding his people. From his mouth comes a two-edged sword, two-edged sword. And this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 is a fantastic chapter. You should go read it sometimes. It just talks about who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And one of the things Isaiah 11 says is that he will rule the world with perfect justice and equity and that he will, uh, there will be a rod from his mouth that he smashes wickedness with. That is this two-edged sword. It's speaking of the fact that Jesus' judgments and Jesus' justice is perfect and it is precise and it will be carried out. Finally, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What is more powerful than the sun? Right? You can't look at the sun right, in full strength. Right? It's so powerful, it's so magnificent that we can't look at it with our blind eye and remain unchanged. What is more essential to life and yet outside of your control than the sun? It's like, we need the sun for life. Everything on this planet needs the sun for life. And yet it's like, so big and so overwhelming and so powerful, we can't even get close to it. We can't even look at it without sunglasses on for millions and millions of miles away. What a perfect picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is essential to our life, and yet he is totally outside of our control. And as C.S. Lewis said, he is good, but he is not safe. All of these images point to what theologians refer to as Christus Victor, Christus victor, Christ the victor, Christ the conqueror, Christ the victorious. The aspect of the work of Jesus that emphasizes his triumph over every evil power that opposes him. What does Christus victor mean? Christus victor means Satan doesn't win, Jesus wins. It means darkness doesn't win, light wins. It means lies don't win, it means truth wins in your life and in this world. Christus, Christus Victor is a precious promise of the scriptures, but the Western church doesn't care. We don't care. Do you know why we don't care? Because generally speaking, you and I are warm, well-fed, and powerful. You know who wasn't warm, well-fed, and powerful? All these churches that John is writing to. You know who's not warm, well-fed, and powerful? Most Christians around the world today. Do you know who's not always gonna be warm, well-fed, and powerful? You. Look, when your life gets hard and you're not warm, well-fed and powerful and things aren't going well and you get old and you're suffering, man, and people come against you, you need to know that Christ is not just your substitute, praise God for that, he's also your victory. That he has overcome Satan, that he has overcome sin, that he has overcome death and in him you find victory as well. Friends, if you're going to cave in, compromise and hide your light, then you don't need Christus Victor. You don't, because you're just gonna take care of yourself. But if you're, going to take risks, if you're going to stand strong, if you're gonna stand out, if you're gonna let your light shine, you need to know that your savior reigns and that your savior wins. And he does. And no one can stand before the Lord in his majesty. Christus Victor is a great hope. A great hope to a church under pressure. So what do we do? What do we do in response to this kind of Jesus? Do you even know this kind of Jesus? Like maybe you're coming here today, this is totally shaking you up because you're like, I didn't know that was Jesus at all. Like, have you ever even considered this aspect of who he is or, or have you had a very lopsided view of him like so many of us have? How should we respond to the, the Jesus of scripture, to the Jesus of revelation? Well, John shows us, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When a human being sees the glory of God, they always fall down on their face like they're dead men. Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord in the temple and he falls on his face like a dead man. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, they see Jesus revealed in his glory and they fall down on their face like, a dead, like dead men. 
Here in Revelation chapter one, John sees Jesus in his glory. What's he do? He falls on his face like a dead man. Friends, if you haven't fallen on your face, you haven't really seen Christ. Like if you haven't fallen on your face, you haven't really seen Christ. How could, how could you possibly see Jesus in his exaltation and be like, yeah, like I like to take into account what he says. Jesus, I know you hung the cosmos. I'd like you to be a life coach for me. Jesus, I know that you are the one who died but has risen and will never die again and you hold the seven stars and you have the, the sword in your hand and you're coming to reign and to rule. I would like to take your advice sometimes, but not about like money and not about like sexuality and not about gender and not about marriage. And I'll deal with all that, not about my time and not about my career, not about my kids' youth sports and like, well, none of that stuff, Jesus. But yeah, yeah, you're the Lord. You don't know him. You don't. You can't see Jesus clearly and not fall on your face before him and say, command me. That's just, you either reject who he is and you're like, that's not who he is, or you, you fall on your face and you worship. That's, those are kind of the two options. And so it's a good evaluative question to ask. Have you really seen Jesus? Or do you have kind of like an American consumeristic view of Jesus where he's kind of your homeboy and he, he's always for you and he wants you to follow your dreams and, have, and he wants you to have good self-esteem and you know what I'm talking about. You've been to churches like that. That's not the real Jesus. It'd be a lot easier if it was wouldn't be as good. Man, what we do when we see the real Jesus is we fall on our face, we leave behind our illusions of control, of goodness, and of personal sovereignty, and we confess, Jesus, you are Lord, command me. And this is what I love. This is, this, you gotta see this. This is so good about who Jesus is. Look, look how Jesus responds. But he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me, John, saying, fear not. Oh, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Friends, when you fall on your face in humility before Jesus, do you know what he does? He puts his right hand on your shoulder, he raises you up in mercy, and he says, fear not. God, fear not. I shed my blood to forgive you of your sins. I'm the great high priest who walks with you through your suffering and your sin. I'm the faithful one to the end that will help you to endure. When you fall down in conviction and in humility before God, he puts his hand on your shoulder and he raises you up and he says, fear not, I have overcome. Friend, if you've never fallen down before Jesus Christ, I would exhort you to do that today. Jesus Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. If you've never repented and trusted in him, do so today. If you try to stand before Jesus, he will cause you to bow in judgment, but if you bow before Jesus, he will raise you up in mercy. And friends, if you have repented and trusted in Christ, then be confident of his love, be confident of his mercy, and do what John does in verse 19. Write therefore the things that you have seen, Jesus gave John a job to do. John fell down in humility. Jesus raised him up in mercy and he gave him a commission to obey. He said, I want you to write these things down and I want you to send these things out to the churches. That same dynamic is at work in our lives today. Guys, when you see Jesus clearly, you will serve Jesus fully. That's what we see. When you see Jesus clearly, you will serve Jesus fully. You will say with Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. We wanna be a church that sees Jesus clearly, that rejoices in his grace, and also receives his commission to go and to tell, to serve him with the whole heart. And I wanna give you an opportunity to do that today. It's really what this card is about. There's a lot of opportunities to serve Jesus, a lot of ways you can do that. But one of the big ways right now at our church is we're launching this PM service. And we're launching it because we really believe it is the heart of Jesus. We're only gonna be able to launch it if every one of us comes to the table and says, I can't do everything, I should do everything, but I should do something. And so I want you to consider prayerfully 
Now, what your part of the wall is, what you're gonna rebuild. If you look on the back, here's some different options. Pull it out for me. Top left hand says worship and serve in the PM. That means that you're gonna then come to the afternoon, to the evening service. You're gonna worship in the evening service and then you're gonna serve in guest services in the evening service. That'd be great. You're gonna move your kind of Sunday ritual to the, to the evening, it'll be great. Below that, it says worship and serve in the AM. That means, hey, for whatever reason, I just, we can't do the PM service, we, we can't move it, but I mean, I wanna make it happen. So you're gonna backfill some of the serving slots for the morning services. You're gonna, man, worship with us in the morning. You're gonna jump up to serve to, man, to, to fill some of those slots. That'd be great. Top right corner, it says worship AM and serve PM. This is, hey, I'm gonna worship in the morning and then I'm gonna come back in the evening to serve with Center Kids so that we can offer generational discipleship at 4.30 p.m. Just so you know, if you do that, you get more crowns in heaven, you do. I don't have a verse, but I'm confident that's what it works, okay? We, I would just be really honest with you, we need 25 people at least to do that to be able to offer kids, offer kids ministry. Your part of the wall might be that. You might be like, you know what? That's what I'm doing. I'm gonna make it possible for us to have a kids ministry in the evening. Worship AM, serve PM. Finally, worship PM, serve AM. You say, hey, I'll, I'll serve in the morning. I love serving in the morning. I'll come back and I'll worship at night. I'd love to do that. There's probably three, three groups of you um, here. The, the first group are, are those of you that are currently serving faithfully. Man, so grateful for you. We exist, we do all that we do because of you. So what you're, what you're doing is you're committing to kind of extend your serving. So the commitment is like January to June and help us get this thing launched. So that'd be you, you're just, gonna, you're just gonna keep serving. That'd be awesome. Fill out what you're already doing and that's your commitment. Some of you um, have served before, but you've kind of fallen off. And it's not necessarily for bad reasons. Um, like maybe you had a baby, like 50% of our churches had a baby in the last month. Um, so maybe that's you and that's, you know, that's fine. Or like, I don't know, maybe you fell off because like you went through something hard or maybe you just, you know, I don't know. You just have fallen off. This is an opportunity for you to re-engage, to go from serving maybe like once a month or once every other month to like, man, let's, let's get you up like two or three times a month. Like help us get this thing going. So you're, man, you're gonna fill out and you're gonna, you're gonna jump in to, to serve more frequently. And then the last group of you, um, you, you've never served before. And that may be because you're new and, and this is a great opportunity for you to jump in. It might be that you're just kind of realizing, right? Like, ah, oh, man, I've kind of been consuming at this church. I haven't been contributing. It's really time for man, me to move from con just consuming to, to also contributing. And we would love to have you do that to help us launch this thing. Okay, here, here's what we saw in Nehemiah. Everybody, nobody did everything, but everybody did something. And as a result, the mission of God moved forward. And what we see in the book of Revelation is that when we see Jesus clearly, we fall on our faces. He lifts us up in mercy and then he gives us a job to do. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm just gonna give you a couple of minutes. Our band's gonna come out on the stage. I'm just gonna play. I'm just gonna give you a couple of minutes to prayerfully fill out this card. And as your pastor, I'm asking you to help us do this. Talk to your spouse. If you have a spouse, pray, fill that card out. And then in about two minutes, I'll come back out and I'll lead us into a time of worship. So you look at that card and we'll worship here in a moment.